This is Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective provides a weekly overview of news that pertains to your Christian life and is designed to help you discern and interpret issues that affect you in light of God's truth. Here is Dr. Jim Ekman to help you think biblically about these issues. Welcome and thank you for being with me today on our program, Issues in Perspective. Recently, President Obama determined that the Defense of Marriage Act, DOMA, the 1996 law that bars federal recognition of same-sex marriages is unconstitutional. He directed the Justice Department to stop defending the law in courts. Despite the fact that his administration had defended DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act, during his first two years in office, the department will no longer do so. The Attorney General, Eric Holder, declared, quote, the president and I have concluded that classifications based on sexual orientation should be subjected to strict legal tests intended to block unfair discrimination, and therefore DOMA is unconstitutional. The administration's change in position resulted from an internal debate within the administration, first within the Justice Department's civil division and then at the White House itself. Both bodies reached the conclusion that gay people qualified for greater protection afforded to a handful of classes like race or gender. And under that test, discrimination is presumed unconstitutional. Hence, their decision to no longer defend the Defense of Marriage Act in court. I'd like to make several comments about this actually quite remarkable decision. First of all, how unusual is the president's decision? At his confirmation hearings in 2009, Eric Holder, now the Attorney General of the United States, stated, quote, The duty of the Justice Department is to defend statutes that have been passed by Congress, unless there is some very compelling reason not to, close quote. He set his own standard, very compelling reason. Did he follow that standard? According to our Constitution, it is the executive branch of the national government that enforces the laws of this nation. Law correspondent Adam Liptak argues, quote, Even when an administration believes a law to be bad policy or subject to plausible constitutional attack, the Justice Department almost always defends it in court. Congress enacted the law after all, and a president signed it. It would be an odd system in which the Justice Department routinely overrode those determinations, close that quote. Holder and, apparently, President Obama, both believe that DOMA is an exception to the normal practice of the Justice Department. The decision of the Attorney General and the President is obviously provocative and controversial. After all, the President is, according to the Constitution, to take care that the laws be faithfully executed. Nonetheless, despite this most unusual decision, there are some precedents for doing so. John C. Eastman, law professor at Chapman University, argues that there are indeed occasional cases where the Justice Department should decline to defend a statute, particularly when it intrudes on presidential power. But... Eastman contends, a policy-based objection 
to the Defense of Marriage Act does not even, and these are his words, remotely qualify. So even though there is precedent for a decision like this, most of the time the decisions not to defend a law that Congress has passed and the president has signed are those that intrude on the power of the president. This does not pass that test. So it would seem as if the president of the United States and the attorney general have made a decision based more on culture than on law, based more on personal preferences and prejudices they might have against a particular law than the way in which things normally occur. The President of the United States is to carry out the laws Congress passes. He has chosen not to do that in this case. That leads me then to a second question. How have conservatives in this nation responded to Obama and Holder's decision to no longer defend the Defense of Marriage Act? The overall silence of conservative political leaders in the United States is deafening. In the hours that followed the decision announced by Eric Holder, Sarah Palin's Facebook was silent. Mitt Romney said nothing. Tim Pawlenty, former governor of Minnesota, waited one day and released a statement saying he was disappointed. Newt Gingrich and Haley Barber took their time in responding, and now only with mild, rather tepid responses. Mitch Daniels was silent. Mike Huckabee called the decision utterly inexplicable. One can only conclude that the conservative leaders of this nation see the economic issues facing the United States as far more important than cultural ones. Several commentators have noted that gay rights issues are no longer significant to the conservative Republican base. Furthermore, the Tea Party movement, now dominating so much of the conversation within conservatism, rose in influence on issues associated with finances, the national debt, and the spending binge of Congress, not on social or cultural issues per se. They are on the back burner if they're even on the burner at all. At least in early 2011, early March, the matter of gay rights and its concomitant same-sex marriage are no longer compelling wedge issues. The state of the American economy is causing all other issues to pale in significance. Finally, in this brief perspective on the Defense of Marriage Act and the unwillingness of our president to defend that law, what are the implications for Holder and especially for President Obama? It seems logical to conclude that DOMA is doomed. It is hard for me to imagine that the Defense of Marriage Act will be sustained. I think it's going to be overturned. I think it will be overturned probably at several levels because now the Justice Department is no longer going to defend it. If no one defends it in the courts, it will be ruled unconstitutional sooner, probably rather than later. It also seems logical to conclude that President Obama now believes that the full legalization of same-sex marriage in the United States is inevitable. 
Furthermore, it also seems logical that the president and his advisors no longer believe that there is much of a political risk to this position of embracing the legality of same-sex marriage. That several Republicans backed the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell in the military right before Christmas is another indicator of how the nation is increasingly accommodating itself to the gay rights and same-sex marriage agenda. For someone like me, who believes that God's creation ordinance in Genesis 2, 15 through 25 is binding on the human race, this is a sad day. Our nation is now accommodating itself to a commitment to the ethical autonomy of the individual. Whatever the autonomous individual sees as ethically right is to be protected by the state. There are no universal ethical standards binding on all people. It is the individual's choice, and that choice is sovereign. I believe that we will look back on this decision by President Obama and Eric Holder as a watershed decision, abandoning God's design for his most sacred institution, marriage and the family. In our second perspective on the program today, I want to think with you about the high speed rail proposal of this administration. President Obama recently presented his budget to the Congress, and as a part of this budget, he is launching an initiative for a high-speed rail network for the United States. Indeed, Vice President Joe Biden, with great fanfare, announced the administration's plan in Philadelphia to spend $53 billion over six years for a national high-speed rail system. The economist Robert Samuelson cogently concludes, quote, The administration would pay states $53 billion to build rail networks that would then lose money, lots of money, thereby aggravating the budget squeezes of the states or the federal government, depending on which one covers the deficits. Close that quote from economist Robert Samuelson. In fact, Transportation Secretary Ray LaHood now estimates that the administration's ultimate goal to bring high-speed rail to 80% of the population of this nation could cost $500 billion over 25 years. Samuelson evaluates the inherent risks and dangers of this high-speed rail proposal that the Obama administration has made. And I would like to summarize many of those important points that he surfaces. Number one, passenger rail service inspires wishful thinking, Samuelson says. In 1970, Congress created Amtrak, a system to preserve inner-city passenger trains, with the idea that it would become profitable and self-sustaining. That has never happened. Amtrak has swallowed $35 billion in subsidies, which are actually increasing by about $1 billion per year. In fact, Amtrak actually does not provide low-cost transportation. If, for example, you plan to travel from Washington, D.C. to New York City, 
an Amtrak fare would cost you $139 one way. If you used a private bus service, it would cost you $21.50. Furthermore, Amtrak does not really relieve congestion in the city, does not cut oil use, does not reduce pollution or eliminate greenhouse gases. Its traffic volumes are simply too small to matter. In 2010, Amtrak carried 21, excuse me, 29.1 million passengers for the entire year. That reflects about 4% of annual air travel, 725 million passengers in 2010. Further, it is roughly a quarter of daily automobile commuters, 124 million in 2008. Measured by passenger miles traveled, Amtrak represents one-tenth of one percent of the national total. Point number two in Samuelson's argument. Those who support subsidizing passenger rail service argue that such subsidies offset huge government support of highways and airways. This, they suggest, levels the playing field. But in fact, in 2004, for example, the Transportation Department evaluated federal transportation subsidies from 1990 to 2002. It found passenger rail service had the highest subsidy, $186.35 per thousand passenger miles, followed by mass transit, $118 per thousand passenger miles, by contrast, drivers receive no net subsidy for their cars because their fuel taxes cover all federal spending, and subsidies for airline passengers were about $5 per thousand miles. So that suggestion and argument totally breaks down. Thirdly, to recoup initial capital costs for the construction of this high-speed rail network and train purchases, Ticket prices would have to be set so high that few people would choose this rail system. Lower prices would undoubtedly not cover costs, so the government would need to heavily subsidize the system. Indeed, most current mass transit systems regularly run deficits, despite high ridership in major cities. Number four. The reasons why passenger rail service does not work are obvious. Interstate highway system, suburbanization has fragmented destination points, and air travel is quicker and more flexible for long distances. Even if ridership increased 15-fold over current Amtrak levels, the effects on congestion, national fuel consumption, and emissions would still be minimal indeed it would be trivial. Now, dear people, for all of these reasons, the economist Robert Samuelson reaches this poignant and powerful conclusion. Quote, Governing ought to be about making wise decisions. What is disheartening about the Obama administration's embrace of high-speed rail is that it ignores history evidence, and logic. The case against a high-speed rail network is overwhelming. 
High-speed rail is not, as Biden said, an investment in the future. It is mostly a waste of money. Good government cannot solve all of our problems, but it can at least not make them worse. Close that quote. I made the decision to do a perspective on this high-speed rail network because I believe it is indicative of where we are as a nation. Our expectation is that we look to government to take the risk out of living. And dear people, no government can do that. And this whole idea of a high-speed rail network, initially it's proposed to cost $53 billion, The Transportation Secretary says that over 25 years it could cost $500 billion, is absolutely an unsustainable and unworkable proposal. And when you factor in all of the details I've summarized in this particular perspective, this is not wise governance. This is not good public policy. And for a nation that is already in significant debt crisis, And going out just a few years, creating enormous potential issues for this culture and civilization, to propose a high-speed rail network is not only illogical, ignoring the basic evidence that is being presented, but it gives to me the indication of not wise governing policy, but utter and absolute foolishness. In our third and final perspective on today's program, I want to return to the Middle East and think with you about anti-Semitism in the Arab world. During World War II, Adolf Hitler showered the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, Haj Amin al-Husseini, who is also the titular head of the Palestinian people, with gifts, wealth, and a villa outside Berlin. Why did Hitler do that to the Grand Mufti of Jerusalem, the titular head of the Palestinian people? Because he broadcast Nazi propaganda throughout the Middle East. He recruited European Muslims for the SS. He exulted in the Holocaust. And after the war, He went on to represent the Palestinian people in the Arab League. By any standard, in my judgment, the Grand Mufti was a war criminal. But today he is a hero among many Palestinian people. As the columnist Richard Cohen observes, His exterminationist anti-Semitism was considered neither overly repugnant nor all that exceptional. The Arab world, Cohen concludes, is saturated by Jew hatred. Close that quote. This sentiment remains a strong part of current Arab nationalism. A current and most relevant example is the esteemed religious leader of the Muslim Brotherhood. His anti-Semitic credentials are impeccable. For example, he has declared that Hitler was sent by Allah, quote, as divine punishment for the Jews, close that quote. And his program on the Al Jazeera television network is one of the most popular that is aired over that network. Ideas, sentiments, 
and prejudices like this are dangerous in the Middle East. Some are saying that the Muslim Brotherhood's anti-Semitism is not that pronounced, nor really anything to worry about. But as Cohen observes, there are no Jews in Arab lands. They were kicked out after Israel was established in 1948. Nowhere in the Middle East is peace with Israel popular. Nowhere in the Middle East is anti-Semitism considered aberrant or weird. It is inconceivable to me that Arab politicians will not attempt to harness both sentiments, combining nationalism with anti-Semitism, which is a combustible and unstable compound. History instructs us about what follows. Close that quote. When it comes to the Arab world, it almost seems as if the world community has granted an exception to the standards expected of the rest of the world. Genesis chapter 12, verse 3 is still a powerful reminder of God's standard when it comes to the Jewish people. God told Abraham that he would bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. Therefore, anyone who disrespected and treated Abraham and his descendants and his faith lightly would be removed from the place of blessing. Consequently, God said Abraham would also be a channel of blessing for the whole world. No one would find divine blessing apart from the blessings given through Abraham and his seed. And of course, the Apostle Paul picks up on this in the book of Galatians and sees this blessing coming through Jesus Christ, the Savior of the world. That divine blessing is ultimately the blessing of justification by faith. The Jewish people remain a strategic part of God's program. Daniel chapter 9 through Daniel chapter 12 make it crystal clear that God still has a plan for the Jewish people as he fulfills his covenant promises made to the patriarchs. The world is foolish if it believes that God will ignore anti-Semitism. He will not. The standard of Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, still stands. God's love for the Jewish people still stands. In Ezekiel 36 and 37, God declared he would bring the people back to their land, which he is doing. His covenant promises still stand. And any nation and any people that believes they can pursue a policy of anti-Semitism is a nation or a people that will face God's disciplinary judgment. He is not done with the Jewish people, and anti-Semitism is a policy that will only bring judgment from God. The Arab leaders who are trying to combat and combine Arab nationalism with anti-Semitism are pursuing a potential policy of utter foolishness, which will bring God's disciplinary hand of judgment upon them. And it is also important for the United States to remember that parameter as well, as it seeks policy options in the volatile Middle East. May God give us great wisdom and great discernment as we try to position ourselves in this volatile part of the world. 
You've been listening to Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman, President of Grace University. Issues in Perspective is a radio production of Grace University in Omaha, Nebraska. If you have any questions or comments, or you would like a written summary of today's program, write to Issues in Perspective, 1311 South 9th Street, Omaha, Nebraska, 68108. You can also view a transcript and listen online at issuesinperspective.com. Join us next week for Issues in Perspective with Dr. Jim Ekman. Issues in Perspective is a listener-supported program and ministry of Grace University. You can listen to this program as well as past programs on the web. Just log on to issuesinperspective.com and click on the Listen To button. You can also find the link to Dr. Ekman's website by logging on to this radio station's website and click on the Issues in Perspective banner ad. Issues in Perspective depends on listeners like you in order to broadcast on this station and other Christian radio stations across the country. Please send your tax-deductible donation to Issues in Perspective, P.O. Box 3251, Omaha, Nebraska, 68103. Your generous donation will help spread the Word of God and how it relates to culturally engaged Christians in today's world.